it mine to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament passage of Isaiah. The Old Testament passage of Isaiah. With a new year, we also start a brand new series. Now, the theme of this year that is that it all begins with God. You may or may not get tired of me repeating that phrase this year, but it's going to be repeated quite a bit because this is a conviction of mine. In fact, I think it's a biblical principle of mine. It all begins with God. And this very first series we're going to have for this year is called The Vision of God. The Vision of Our God. And it all begins with God. And so let's start to one of the classic passages that speak about the vision of our God in Isaiah in chapter number 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and if you wouldn't mind, notice with me starting at verse number 1. Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse number 1, the word of God says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he did cover, he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See you indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand in their heart, and convert, and be healed. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, the phrase high and lifted up, high and lifted up. And with the Lord's help, I'd like to preach the Lord high and lifted up, the Lord high and lifted up. Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the great privilege it is to be in your house today. Thank you for the brand new year and thank you for the beginnings that you give for us here. Lord, we're looking forward to seeing what you're going to do in this brand new year at the Riverview Baptist Church, how you're going to work, how you're going to move, how you're going to just show yourself faithful. Lord, my personal belief is that it begins with a vision of you. We see who you are. And Lord, I can't just describe you. 
I need you to show up so people can see you for themselves. That they can see you and know you. Lord, I'm asking that you would increase the people's knowledge of you. That people can experientially know you and say, wow, what a God. Again, that's something I cannot do. That is your spirit's job and your spirit's job alone. I'm just a messenger. I'm just an instrument. And use me as such today. Lord, be God right now. That's all I'm asking is for you to be God and nothing else. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now in the context of this, notice in verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. Now King Uzziah had just died. King Uzziah had reigned over uh, Judah for 45 years. He was a long reigning king, and to a lot of people he was the only king they had ever known. And now that the king died, there's a little bit of uncertainty. There's a little bit of anticipation, anxiety, worriness. What's going to happen? Finances are a little bit um, unstable. Uh, the things of the kingdom politically and everything else. People are just kind of wondering, what's going to happen? We've lost this king. How, how, what are we going to do now? What's the next king going to be like? How, what, everything is just in turmoil, chaos, there's confusion. And they're going, what's going to happen now? It is at this point in time that God called a young man by the name of Isaiah. And he said, let me show you something. And so it was in the midst of some uncertain days. It was in the midst of things trying to wonder how things are going to work out, what's going to happen here, that the people got a vision of a high and holy God. And if you wouldn't mind, let me show you a little bit more about this passage here. The first thing I'd like to show you is the vision of God. The vision of God. Notice in verse 1 again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Now Isaiah got a glimpse, a vision of God, and in this vision he sees God in the throne, in the temple. The temple was the same temple that Solomon had built. And in it had a little bit of thro- a throne to represent God being the ruler, being the God of the people. And he actually sees God sitting on the throne. So he's sitting in the temple. And he watches some things that are interesting talking about this God. Notice in verse 1 again, it said that his train filled the temple. Now a train would be like the cloak or the cape, the, the, the robe that a king would wear or royalty would wear. And in the Old Testament days, in the ancient world, what would happen is that the longer the train the more glory and honor that was ascribed to that king, to that ruler. And so you may have seen it at a wedding. Maybe a a bride would have a long train. It's something that would flow behind that. This king, this God that Isaiah sees, his train is so long that it actually fills up the entire building. Now, we're, not in, we're in a building that's nowhere near the size of Solomon's temple, but can you imagine 
a king sitting on a throne appeared near the platform and his train that followed him was so long that it would be folded up and squished and it would fill up the entire building. That is how much honor and glory and prestige that should be ascribed to God. This is a visual representation to go ahead and give uh, uh, something that is a spiritual fact that God is worthy of all glory, of all honor, of all praise, of all worship. And this train was supposed to be that representation that our God is a very glorious God. He is an amazing God. He is an honorable God. He is a prestigious God. He is a God who is high and lifted up. Notice something else as we see here. Verse number 2. And above it, so it's speaking above the throne, stood the seraphims. The seraphims are a specific type of angel. They're literally meaning the burning ones. And little uh, people have different ideas of what it means by the burning ones whether they could breathe fire, whether they had fire around them. But no matter what they were, they were a special type of angel who's tasked with keeping the throne room of God. Now, because of cartoons and other theologies that have gone up, we have a different view of angels. Sometimes when people think of angels, they think of little fat, little babies with diapers and, and, and with a little halo and clouds and a harp and whatever else. But that's not the description that God gives of this angel. These seraphims, these burning ones. Notice how the Bible describes this angel. And above it stood the seraphims. With each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. So these seraphims, these burning ones, we don't know exactly what it means by these burning ones, what is burning or whatever else, but they are a specific type of angel and they have three sets of wings, six wings. Now with one set they fly around. That's what we would attribute most of the time with wings. That's how they would fly around. But they also had two other sets of wings. What were they there for and what did they mean? Well, with one set of wings, they covered their face. So they're angels, seraphims, that are in the throne room of God. And they have a set of wings that are near the back of their head that would actually cover their face. And you say, what good is wings if they're covering their face? The reason why they cover their face is because these angels, these seraphims, these angels that are made higher than men, these perfect angels, as perfect as they are, God is much more perfect. And these angels cannot look upon the face of God. These perfect angels who who were made without sin, who are made to work in the throne room of God, but yet God is so holy, He is so righteous, He's so amazing that these angels have to have special wings. God created them because they cannot look upon the face of God and live. That's how holy. You say, that's pretty amazing. It is. Do you know that there's a verse in Psalm that says that God has to humble himself just to look at heaven? That God is so holy, he is so perfect, that God actually has to step down to look at heaven. 
We want to go to heaven. That's much more than what we have. A place of perfectness. No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death, no more tears. But God is so much more above. God is so much more perfect. He is so much more holy. He has to humble himself to look at heaven. And here are these angels, as perfect as they are, as amazing as they are, as higher beings than us that they are, they still cannot look upon the face of God because God is that holy. He is that mighty. He is that prestigious. He is that honorable that they cannot look upon the face of God. In fact, and throughout all of the Bible, there is only one creature and one creature alone who is able to look upon the face of God and not die. That creature is redeemed man. That in our sinful state, we can't look upon the face of God. In fact, if we just had one of these seraphims come in this building right now, every single one of us would be ducking underneath these pews for cover because of the glory and the holiness and the righteousness that they have. That even us, we would fall down to our face. But God is going to allow us the privilege as redeemed man, meaning a person who's come and accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and that we've come to the place where we've allowed God to forgive us, and that one day, after the rapture, we're going to get a brand new body with our brand new body. We are going to be able to look at God. But we are the only ones of God's creation who will be able to look at God with our own eyes. Even the holy angels can not look at God because He is that amazing. He is that holy. He is that lifted up. He is that high. That is a big God. Now we talked about two sets of these wings. These seraphims, these these angels who are tasked with keeping the throne room of God, they have two wings that help them fly. They have a set of wings that cover their eyes because they can't look upon the face of God. But there's also another set of wings, and these wings cover their feet. You say, okay, we can explain the eyes, but why in the world would these angels cover their feet? And this is, again, because of how holy God is. You know that feet are a sign of createdness. We, it's a sign of creation. God is a spirit, the Bible says, John chapter 4. He doesn't have feet. But feet are a sign that we were created. And that when we go before the presence of God, these angels, when they go before the presence of God, they cover their feet with their wings as a sign of humbleness saying, you created us, God. Do you know that we're just created beings? And every time you look at your feet, I hate feet. They're nasty and they're whatever else. They're, I hate feet. But every time you look at your feet, be reminded that it is a sign that you were created by a creator. God is much higher than us because he made us. He is an amazing God. He is a holy God. He is a magnificent God. And that even these angels, these angels who were created perfect were still created. And in the presence of their their creator, they have to cover their feet. By the way, this is where Moses, why Moses, when he approached the burning bush, God said, stop, 
Take off your shoes because the ground you're stepping on, that's holy ground. Why take off his shoes? Because again, he wanted to have a reminder that that feet was a sign of humbleness that he was created by a creator. And he wanted to remind Moses of that, that you're standing before your creator. We have a holy God. He is so big. He is so mighty. Do you know that God created time? That God, that's a created thing. And that literally God could put all of time from beginning to end in his palm. God is much bigger than time. He is much bigger than space. He's much bigger than matter. He is so big, he's bigger than it all. He is the creator who created it all. This is a holy, awesome, awe-spiring, majestic, perfect God. And Isaiah sees this God. We're just starting, this is verse 2. He sees this God who's in the throne room of God, whose train filled the temple, that He is a God of all glory, of all honor, of all prestige. He's a God who actually has these seraphims who are serving in the throne room of God that have to cover their eyes because they can't look upon this magnificent God. They have to cover their feet as a sign of humbleness because God created them. Notice as it goes on in verse 3. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of her." host the whole earth is full of his glory these angels are in there and they're saying holy 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 we see these angels from time to time in the bible we see them once again in the book of revelation chapter number four and five and you know what they're still saying holy 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 lord god almighty who was and is and is to come he is god you know that god created these angels because god is so big he is so holy he is so mighty he is so magnificent that he created these angels and for all of time their one job is to be in the throne room of god saying holy 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 lord God Almighty, who is and was and is to come for all of time. God is so worthy of all praise that He has these angels, and that is their job to say that over and over and over again. Because you know what? They can never say it enough to describe the presence, the magnificence, the holiness, the perfectionness of God. He is that big of a God. He is that holy of a God. He is that big, that amazing God. Notice as it goes on, verse 4, And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Notice this, the post of the door, that's the door frames that they're shaking. And notice this, at the voice of him that cried. This isn't God that is speaking, but these seraphims, these burning ones, are saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And they're saying with such force and such passion 
that their voice of their crying is actually causing the post of the door to shake. Can you imagine Isaiah? He's in there watching this God and watching his train fill the temple. And he's watching these angels around who have these wings, six set of, uh, six wings. And they're watching them cry, holy, holy, holy. And they're doing repeatedly and constantly and not stopping. And they're saying with such fervor and such anticipation and and such passion that it's an earthquake and he is standing there trembling probably because of his own knees knocking but he is trembling and watching God has revealed him a presence and to be able to see this God and his glory and his majesty and to feel the earth trembling and literally the whole building shaking just because the angels and their passion of saying holy, holy, holy. You see, that's how big God is. Notice as it goes on, verse 4, and it says his house, the house was filled with smoke. Now again, this is a visual way of trying to explain a spiritual thing that it's literally the Holy Spirit presence is so thick in that place. It's almost like smoke that it's literally so thick that you can't move. Literally, they call it the Shagina glory. And there are times that Moses was working with the people and the Shagina glory came upon the tabernacle and the people could not approach it because of the Shagina glory. That God's presence is so thick that it just was like Isaiah couldn't move because God is so big and his presence is there. We see this vision of God that he sees this and he worships this God and he sees all of this. You see, the absolute essential to everything in life is seeing God and His rightful place. It all begins with God. It all begins with God. The clearer our vision of God is, the clearer everything else in life is. When we see God for whom He truly is, where everything else falls in line, Our church becomes clear. Our marriages, our relationships become clear. Our our work, everything we do becomes clear when we see God and His rightful place. We have to go back to seeing that we have a big God once again. We have to go back and see how big this God is once again. But we have to go here. We cannot worship God to any greater degree than our vision of God. We cannot worship God to any greater degree than our vision of God. Meaning that if you see God as a little g God, you're not going to worship Him beyond that vision. But when you see God high, holy, and lifted up, your worship will soar up to there. It all is dependent on how we See God. It all begins with God. So we see this vision of God, which brings us to the second thing. Not only the vision of God, but the vision of ourselves. You see, it's not until we see God as He truly is that we finally see us as we truly are. Notice in verse number 5. Then said I... 
Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's in there. He's watching the seraphims. He watches the train. He watches the posts of the door move. He sees the smoke fill the temple. All of it all proclaiming the majesty and the might and the holiness and the perfection of God. And when he sees how holy and how perfect God is, he finally sees himself and says, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm a sinner, and I live with sinners, and there's no way that I can stand before this type of God. I'm nothing. You know, it's not until we see God that we see ourselves as we truly are. As long as you think that you're something, it's because you're not seeing God as He truly is. God is a wonderful God. You know, the idea of secret sins is not sins that we do in secret, but it's sins that are not revealed to us until God reveals it to them. You know, the closer you get with God, the more of a sinner that you see yourself as. That's a true fact. The closer and the more clear you see God, the more of a sinner you see as yourself. You know, I may be convicted of sins that you don't even think are sins yet. The closer you get with God, the more of a sinner, the more of things that you see, the more that God reveals about ourselves and shows us who we truly are. But it starts with the vision of God. When you see God as perfect, you see yourself not as perfect. You see God as holy and righteous, and we see ourselves as fail. We see ourselves as awful. I know this flies in the face face of other religions that says you know it's not your sin problem it's just your low self-esteem no it's because we don't see god high and holy and lifted up and we see ourselves as the wretches we truly are you know why people sometimes have a hard time getting saved because they don't see god high holy and lifted up they've never been introduced to this big god notice as he goes on in verse six then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar. Now, what is this altar? It's the altar uh, that's found in the temple. It was made to purify sins. Once again, this is a visual. It is a visual representation of something spiritual happen. Meaning that in order to get your sins purged, you don't have to go put live coals and put it in your hand. But this is a something visual to try to represent what is going on spiritually. That Isaiah saw himself, and he saw himself as a sinner, and he knew he could not approach this holy God unless his sin was taken care of. And so God, remember it all begins with God, God provided the sinner with a way to have his sins removed. Notice the wording of Scripture here. This is important. Verse number Uh, 6 and 7, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Notice that word purged. You know that when God forgives us, he just doesn't pat us on the head and say you're forgiven. But he purges our sins. He takes our sins away. And he casts them as far as the east is from the west. You know, people don't need just forgiven. 
They need their sins purged. They need them removed. They need them taken care of. They don't need to be whitewashed. They need to be removed altogether. And that is what our God does. Is that when we have forgiveness, it's not just washed away and wiped away. It is removed far from us. Because our God is big enough to forgive us of anything that we have ever done. He's that big of a God. What a holy, righteous God. Let me give you some statistics, and these are some old statistics, but they all deal with our vision of God and how we see ourselves. Do you know that 8 million Americans do not even own a Bible? 8 million Americans. I'm not talking about any other country. 8 million. That's an old statistic. Do you know that 10 churches close every day in America? 10 churches close every day. Do you know that only 13% of professing Christians believe that they should live their life by the Ten Commandments? Only 13% say that we need to follow the Ten Commandments. 60% of all Americans have been part of a major crime. You see, we live in a horrible world. And it's not getting better. But part of what the problem with the world is... I people will start blaming everyone else. They look at our world, we look at the newspapers, and they say it's the liberals, it's the media, it's Washington, it's the government, it's this and that. You know what the true problem with America is? Christians. Christians. Because we don't see God high, holy, and lifted up anymore, that it doesn't change us. And because we are not changed, we don't influence our world anymore. You see, a low view of God never convicts people of sin. You know what people try to do? They try to make God more personable. They try to make God more friendly. For example, someone will say, me and JC, we're going to go hang out later on. That is a horrible way to announce God. He is not JC. He is Jesus Christ, Lord Almighty. And yes, I can be friends with him. I can speak to him. I can pray to him. And he can watch after me. But it never stops being Lord God Almighty. And as soon as we bring God down to our level, he doesn't convict us of sins anymore. He's just one of the guys. He's just someone who hooks us up. He's just someone who's there at our beck and call. He is not at our beck and call. He is God and we are the servants. But until we get a clear vision of God, until we see God high, holy, and lifted up, it will not change us. And if we are not changed, we cannot influence a world around us. You know, the world is tired of having a cheap imitation of itself. And that's what the world has become, or the churches have become, a cheap imitation of the world. We are not like the world. We need to become more like God. Now, the secret of having a victorious Christian life is hiding yourself in the presence of God. Having that relationship with God and knowing that God is there with you, you could face anything. You see, a lot of people see the circumstances, but we need to look beyond the circumstances and see the God of the circumstances and see that God is bigger than anything we can deal with, anything we will ever face. 
But we have to have that big vision of God or it does us no good. You see, part of the problem in churches today is that God is no longer a big God. We have a lot of self-help. We have a lot of stuff, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. We have a lot of things that said, let's rally up and get things done. But it cannot start there. It has to start with God. It always has to start with God. Here's a question for you to ponder. Has the world hurt the church or has the church hurt the world? I believe the church has hurt the world because we no longer serve a big God. God is no longer a big God. He's no longer a God who could help people in their needs. He's no longer a God who could hear and answer prayers. He's no longer the perfect God that we must meet the standard of or fall short of the glory of God. We have to have a big God once again. It has to begin with that vision of God. We have to see Him high, holy, and lifted up. So notice as this passage, it started off with a vision of God. And after Isaiah got a vision of God, he saw himself, got a vision of himself as he truly was. And after you see God as he truly is, and you see yourself as you truly are, it shows us a third thing here, the vision of the work. The vision of the work. Once God is in his rightful place, and we see us as we truly are, that we're nothing, and that we're nothing without God, and God has to do it all then we could finally see the work as it truly should be. Notice in verse number 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Notice that word us. God is speaking to himself here. He's speaking to him, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. They're having a conversation. And they're saying, Jesus, who can go for us? Who can do this work? Isaiah, who's not part of the conversation, he's an eavesdropper. He's listening to God have the conversation. He says, here am I! Send me! God didn't ask him to do the work. He volunteered. Why? Because he saw God as he truly is. And he says, just tell me what to do. You are God. You are amazing God. You are the God I want to serve. You're the God I love. Just tell me what to do. And he gives them his instructions. But it's only after that we see God that we can go out. It's only after we see God that we have something to tell. The lack of surrender, when someone has a lack of surrender, it's evidence that they don't see God high, holy, and lifted up. We shouldn't have to twist people's arm to do something in church. We shouldn't have to beg people to, le- to read their Bibles. We shouldn't have to get on our knees and ask people to give. We shouldn't say, badger them and do what we can to get them to, to go soul winning. It should never be done that way. Because if they see God as they truly are, they will get in line. They'll push people out of the way to do the work. The lack of surrender is evidence that we don't see God as he truly is. Because the work is not a big deal if you see who God truly is. It's not a big deal to read your Bible if you want to know more about this God and you see him as he truly is. 
It's not a big deal to pray and talk to that God when you see who this God is. It's not a big deal to give when you realize it's God who owns it all anyways. It's not mine. It's not a big deal to show up at church because you want to be here to worship that great God. It's not a big deal to go tell others about Christ when God's the one that's burning on your heart and you just got to go tell others about this big God. We have to get back to seeing God high, holy, and lifted up. The greatest day in your life is when you realize your personal accountability to Christ. When you realize that one day you're going to stand before that God and you're going to give an account to that God. When you realize that's true, there's nothing that would stop you from serving that God and to do things on a daily basis for Him. So I want to ask you, how big is your God? Do you have a big G God or a little G God? Is he a God that you can take or leave? Or is he God that you just look and say, wow? Does God still make you say, wow? Does he still make your jaw drop and go, wow? Does he still just make you speechless and you just had no words to describe when you watch God work and who he is? The question I'm asking you is how is your vision of God? Who is God to you? Is he a grandfather with salt and pepper hair that when you mess up he says, oh, it's all right, no big deal. Is he your Santa Claus that you pray to and ask that he give you good gifts if you're a good boy or girl? Or is he God? Is he the God of the universe, the creator God, the God who made you and me, the God who makes no mistakes, the God who does everything perfect, the God who knows what he's doing, the God who's sitting on his throne, the God who's not wringing his hands and saying, what am I going to do? How did I get in this mess? I didn't see this coming. Is your God the God of the universe? We just need to get back to the first thing. It all begins with God. It all begins with God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let's talk to that God right now. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for your gloriousness your majesty, and Lord, once again, please forgive me because my human words cannot describe your wonders and your beauty and your awesomeness. Lord, my pathetic attempt, the best I could do is just try to show you who you are and try to explain that if we see you as you truly are, that the rest of this life gets put in order. Lord, please let us see you once again for whom you truly are. Let us see this God who loves us so much, but yet is king who is holy. Lord, I'm asking you would help us in our own hearts and our own vision of you, that you would almost give us this Isaiah experience that say, God, 
Show me whom you truly are. Lord, once we see you, there are going to be changes in our life. There's going to be things that are changed, things that, that are going to be unexplainable, things we look back and say, wow, look at what you did, God. Lord, this is less dependent upon us than what we truly think. It has to be you. Lord, I'm asking that you'd watch over these good folks right now. Let them search their own hearts. May I ask you a few questions, dear friend? Let's start at the very beginning. How many of you know without a doubt that you've met this God and you've been purged of your sins? That it hasn't just been patting on the head and saying you're all right, but you know that your sins have been forgiven. They have been purged and God is taking care of that. With every head bowed and every eye closed, how many of you can say, that's me, preacher? I know without a doubt my sins have been solved, my sins have been taken care of. Amen, amen. Perhaps you've never come to the place where you've seen a God who was big enough to take away your sins. I want to let you know that there's a God who loves you so much. And he's willing to forgive you of everything you've ever done. It doesn't matter how big or how small. He's willing to take it all away if you would just ask him. He loved you that much. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you to respond to him. You don't need to pray to a preacher. You need to pray to a God and say, God, forgive me of my sins. Now, as a preacher, it would be my privilege to help show you some things from the Bible and help you so you can know from the Bible that your sins are gone. Dear friend, how many of you can look at your life and say, you know what, 